Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, the Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, my guest is Michael Carpenter. He is a former foreign policy advisor to then Vice President Joe Biden. He is the Managing Director of the Penn Biden Center and most recently a co-author of not one but two pieces with President-elect Joe Biden, one on Russia and what the U.S. policy toward Moscow ought to be, and the other on kleptocracy and what U.S. policy toward corrupt, thieving regimes around the world, and even sort of aspects of that in our own society ought to be. Mike, it's great to have you with us. And uh, I know you've been very busy, so I'm particularly appreciative of you coming on the program. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michael. So let's start with essentially what you've just written with the man who will be president in the space of two months. What do you see a Joe Biden administration doing about the threat posed by Russia from cyber warfare to the continued occupation of Crimea to, I mean, kleptocracy and Kremlin go together like peanut butter and jelly, or so it's been <laughs> alleged by people such as myself. So these two issues that are dear to your heart, and obviously dear to the president-elect's heart, uh, seem very inextricably intertwined. Talk a little bit about how you see this administration going forward. And, and if you want to draw a contrast with the outgoing administration, um, because I know you have some thoughts about that, including policies that were enacted that might have run counter to Donald Trump's rather kittenish rhetoric about Mr. Putin, just lay it out for us as best you can tell and as you've written. Okay, well, thanks, Michael. And I will say that I, you know, I can't speak for the incoming administration. I can't tell you what they will do. I can tell you how we thought about these issues with the president-elect in the past. So with regards to Russia, I think the principal difference between the Biden administration and the current administration is on working with allies and partners to contain and counter Russian aggression. That's what's been missing from Trump's approach over these last four years, calling into question whether the U.S. would defend its allies under Article 5, in fact, openly questioning whether so-called uh, delinquent members of the alliance deserve to be protected by the U.S. security umbrella, questioning as well in the specific case of Montenegro, whether we would come to their aid in the event of a foreign attack. And then, you know, all the disparagement of our allies, particularly Angela Merkel in Germany, but many others as well. Sort of he's taken a battering ram to the transatlantic alliance, I mean, Trump over these last four years. So what you'll see with the Biden administration is working with allies and partners to confront and counter Russia where necessary, but also hopefully to inject some strategic stability into the relationship. So let me explain sort of in, in a little bit more detail what I mean by all this. Sure. So first of all, I, the way I see it, there's sort of five pillars to U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia. The first pillar would be strengthening deterrence and defense capabilities. This is sort of the remit of NATO. This is what NATO does. This has been happening over the last four years as well, under the guidance of folks like Jim Mattis at the Pentagon and others through the European Deterrence Initiative through the deployment of multinational battalions by our allies to some of the frontline states, including the, the Baltics. And so I would expect that this would continue and would in fact be enhanced. More capabilities on the Eastern flank to protect our allies from potential Russian aggression. So that's sort of pillar number one. Pillar number two is in those instances where Russia undertakes hostile action vis-a-vis -vis the United States, or where it engages in egregious violations of the sovereignty of other countries, as it is currently doing in Ukraine, as it's done in the past with Georgia, there has to be a strategy of imposing costs and consequences on the Kremlin for its actions. 
And that's where I think you're going to see, you know, a Biden administration taking a much stronger position than the Trump administration, who, whose hand was really forced by Congress. There were a lot of things that happened, but they happened as a result of legislation. And, you know, I'm not thinking just here of sanctions. I think sanctions are important. They're a good asymmetric tool that the U.S. is able to use when necessary and when appropriate. But the cost imposition strategy has to go far beyond sanctions. It has to be holistic. It has to be internally coherent. You can't be engaging in business and usual and trying to invite Russia back into the G8 at the same time as you're sanctioning them. Right. It just sends a very mixed message. So a much more coherent set of policies to impose costs. That's pillar two. Pillar three, which I actually think I should probably start with pillar three, because I think this is the most important one, involves making ourselves harder targets for Russian subversive measures, what they call active measures that fall below the military threshold. So this isn't just deterrence and defense. This is doing things like working with our European partners to counter money laundering, countering disinformation through NATO-EU cooperation, through legislation that also takes on big tech. This is going after financial active measures, some of the strategic acquisitions of tech companies, of other strategic infrastructure across Europe. That is something that's happening not just from Russia, but from China and other adversaries. So there's this whole range of things that we really ought to be doing to make ourselves much harder targets for Russia's and China's and Iran's and other countries' efforts to subvert our democracies. But we haven't done that. We haven't done any of that over the last four years. In fact, when the House proposed H.R. 1, which had some of these measures included in that omnibus bill, you know, the Senate sort of sat on it and didn't take any action. So that's, I think, a huge agenda. And we can talk more about that. And that gets to kleptocracy as well. The fourth pillar, I would say, is strategic stability. This is terrifically important. It's not just merely the extension of the New START Treaty, which I think is crucial. And I think a Biden administration will do. In fact, President-elect Biden has said that he's going to extend the New START Treaty, which expires on February 5th. That is a good foundation, but it's not enough. There has to be a much more robust set of conversations around crisis management, risk reduction, and then also a potential follow-on treaty to New START that would include new types of weapon systems, right? I mean, Russia is now competing with the U.S., not just quantitatively in terms of rolling out new numbers of missiles of various different types, both intermediate and intercontinental, but they're also engaging in the production of fundamentally new types of weapons like nuclear torpedoes or nuclear power cruise missiles that pose a threat to the homeland, to our allies, and we need to start talking about arms control for those sorts of weapons. Okay, that's pillar number four. Last pillar, also very important, is I think we need to do a much better job of, of reaching out and engaging with Russian civil society and with the next generation of Russians. We've sort of lost our mojo on this. And, you know, I would, I, I'm critical of the Trump administration, but I would say, you know, we didn't do such a great job at the tail end of the Obama administration either. And I think there's a lot of opportunities. Of course, Putin has made this much harder for us. I mean, he's sanctioned U.S. Uh, civil society organizations as foreign agents and prevented them from working in Russia the way they used to. So, yeah, there's challenges, but there is clearly, I think, an avenue for being more nimble and approaching, especially the next generation of Russians who may not agree with, with us on you know all geopolitical issues that we put on the table, certainly things like the annexation of Crimea. A lot of young Russians are going to say that what Putin did was perfectly fine. But we have a lot of common ground that we can work with. 
terms of anti-corruption, in terms of uh, individual liberties, in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of the sorts of things that they care about in their daily lives. And so I, I hope that we can sort of expand our programming in this space. So that's it, really. That's Those are sort of the five pillars that I see as crucial to the U.S.-Russia relationship. And I think, you know, on all of them, I see a Biden administration taking a, a different tack from what we've seen over these last four years. But the president-elect's signature foreign policy goal, as he has now told Thomas Friedman, as he kind of made clear on the campaign, was to, to re-enter the Iran nuclear agreement. And that's something that that is likely to require negotiation or diplomacy with Moscow. Uh, also, he wants to re-enter the Paris Climate Accord, which the Russians are going to have to talk to the Americans about as well. So there, there seems to be coming down the pike areas where the U.S. and Russia will have to cooperate or at least attempt to cooperate. You've also seen attempts by people, some counterintuitive types like Fiona Hill, um, suggesting that we should really have essentially another reset with Russia. The error of misunderstanding is, you know, sort of this perennial concept in American foreign policy that if we only understood the, the Russian way of thinking a little bit better and we were a little kinder or, you know, more accommodating, they'd come to the table and all the things that we want. I don't get the sense from you having known you and read, read your writing for many years, and I don't get the sense from what President-elect has said about Russia and written indeed with yourself on Russia, that a reset or something of that nature is in the offing, at least not in the first hundred days or even two years of this administration, given all the work that has to be done to build up confidence or any kind of, kind of mutual trust between the two countries. Is that a fair assessment or am I being overly pessimistic? Yeah, Michael, I think uh, let's banish the word reset from our vocabulary. Yeah. Look, President-elect Biden is very clear-eyed about the nature of the Russian regime under Vladimir Putin. He sees it as an authoritarian kleptocracy. And I don't think he sees within the seeds of the current regime an ability to reform or a desire to reform or liberalize or court Western investment. So I think it's a very realistic sense of who we're dealing with. At the same time, it would be foolish to turn a blind eye to the need for strategic stability, to not work with the Russians on Iran if they're willing to cooperate, to not seek, you know, maybe a few narrow areas for cooperation, like working together on infectious diseases, which we've done in the past, maybe on climate change in the Arctic, which the Russians are concerned about, maybe a few other issues like nonproliferation. I'm a big skeptic to be honest with you about cooperating in, in other spheres that other that some folks, maybe like Fiona and others, have, have advocated, although I don't know that this is necessarily her view, but you know, some people think, well, we should we should be working together on counterterrorism because we have common interests. You know, I don't think so. I see Russia as largely supporting terrorism or terrorist groups when it suits its purpose and um, and going after them and, and killing them when they don't suit the Kremlin's interests. So I don't see that as an area ripe for cooperation. I don't see a lot of other areas that are ripe for cooperation, but where it's possible, sure, why not? Yeah. And I mean, would you say that in terms of countering kleptocracy, you know, there's an initiative in Congress now to essentially ban anonymous ownerships of companies, right? Um, this is sort of the Delaware phenomenon of weird offshore entities coming into the United States and registering companies. We don't know who the ultimate legal beneficiary of these companies is. Is this something that you advocate too? I mean, 
in order to fight corruption abroad, we must fight it at home. And we have to kind of fortify ourselves and make ourselves more transparent because one of the ways that Russia kind of applies its trade, whatever you want to call it, political warfare, active measures, is enlisting or seconding Westerners to do the dirty work for them, right? You can't launder money unless you have the laundromat. And unfortunately, the United States and especially Europe have become global laundromats for dirty rent money, not just coming from Russia, obviously coming from China, coming from you know other despotic or kleptocratic regimes. What is the kind of program for domestic reform in this regard? Well, I think there has to be a very comprehensive strategy towards anti-corruption and fighting kleptocracy. And it's because corruption is both a tax on economic growth, but it is also, as you said, it's also a vector for foreign interference in our democracy. And by the way, the most successful foreign vector for damaging our national security and democracy to date, much more effective than military operations. And it is simultaneously a vector by which demagogues and demagogic populism has deconsolidated the institutions of democracy, both in this country, you could say, but certainly in Europe and places like Hungary or Poland or Turkey or many other countries. And so getting a handle on how to fight corruption has to be a priority. And, you know, the president-elect has repeatedly stated that it is one of his priorities to make this a top issue. And so I think that the summit of democracies, for example, that he has called for would have as one of its planks an effort to strengthen rule of law and fight corruption. There are a number of different ways to do this and a variety of different pieces that have to be assembled in order to make the picture coherent and to do this well. One of the key things is obviously banning anonymous shell companies. It's just such an open avenue for foreign influence, not just foreign, for all forms of dark money influence in our democracy. And fortunately, I think the National Defense Authorization Act is, is going to pass with that provision in it. But there's so much more that needs to be done beyond just simply banning anonymous shell companies. You know, Increasingly, as we look to the future of competition between liberal democracies and authoritarian oligarchies like Russia and China. We have to beware of these financial active measures that our adversaries are employing to not just to subvert our democratic institutions by, say, for example, funding a, a populist party or a conspiracy theory laden website or things of that nature, but also by, for example, using venture capital uh, that's disguised as American uh, funds but that in fact has a foreign backing behind it in order to get into our tech sector and to influence our decisions and steal our intellectual property. This is what 21st century competition against great powers looks like. Yes, there's the aircraft carrier groups in the Indo-Pacific and, and there's a military dimension to this, but I think the, the most forceful competition is in this sort of financial space with corruption as a pathway for countries like China and Russia, and Russia did this quite well in the, in the 90s, to, to sort of take over a lot of Western companies and get their foot in the door as far as investments are concerned. So we need, just need to be much more nimble. There's, there's a whole range of tools from you know strengthening the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, getting some of our partners and allies to adopt similar legislation, pushing for independent anti-corruption institutions in places like Ukraine, which by the way, is an area where the, you know, the Trump administration has just completely abandoned our partners in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, yes, they sold Javelin missiles and I'm glad they did. Very important. But they completely took their eye off the ball and allowed oligarchic interests to come clawing back in Ukraine and to run roughshod over all of their 
anti-corruption institutions. And so now there's a mess that needs to be cleaned up, frankly. There's a debate among those who watch or study disinformation, particularly by Russia. Look, some people are of the opinion this stuff is a little overcooked or overstated. Like, yeah, you know, you've got Yevgeny Prigozhin and his notorious troll farm in St. Petersburg running influence operations, creating fake news websites, which are then staffed with unwitting Americans, both from the far left and the far right. Avatars with American flags on Twitter that are actually guys sat at their computer in St. Petersburg. All of these things, a lot of people argue, are crude, ineffective, inexpensive. The real danger of disinformation is from within, right? You've got now an outgoing commander in chief who is the largest purveyor of disinformation, whether it's about coronavirus or indeed now the sanctity and security of the last presidential election, which he still has not conceded. What is your view on sort of how to combat, I mean, we, we don't just have to talk about Russia, we can talk about China, we can talk about Iran, we can talk about Saudi Arabia, how to combat the use of digital technology to try and gaslight or manipulate our electorate. I mean, is, is it really more of a question of this stuff, you know, the call is coming from with inside the house, as they say in horror films, Americans are responsible and ultimately the, the real malevolent actors in this regard, or do we have to worry about foreign interference and what more important than that should we be doing about it? Is it about taking down Twitter accounts or Facebook ads bought with rubles? Or it's, do we need a more aggressive approach? I know um, Dan Fried and Alina Polakova just wrote a, a report arguing that, you know, America has been on the back foot. We've been in a de defensive posture with respect to disinformation. Now it's time that we, in conjunction with NATO and the European Union, have to become more aggressive. What's your view on that? You can answer both questions. Is it overinflated as a, as a concept? Uh, and what needs to be done about it? Yeah, well, you know, I, I do think we've seen a shift over time, over the last decade, where foreign disinformation in the U.S., is now just a drop in an ocean, a sort of a torrent of domestically produced disinformation. And so consequently, it, it's not as significant as it was, say, in the 2016 presidential election cycle. I don't like the debate on is foreign disinformation really a thing or is it, you know, because if you dismiss it, then, you know, I think that's not appropriate either. And I think a lot of the people who tend to dismiss foreign disinformation, they're almost like excusing what Putin and Xi and other leaders are doing and, uh, and turning a blind eye to it. So I don't agree that it's insignificant, but I think the root of the problem in order to go after disinformation, whether it's domestically produced or so-called organic content or whether it's foreign, the root of the problem is not just exposing sources and methods every time there is a disinformation campaign, although that is important. That needs to happen. And the Global Engagement Center at the State Department has been set up to help with that. And I think the Biden campaign ran a pretty good operation combating precisely exposing sources and methods of foreign disinformation. But I think the real big issue is the fact that big tech has as its business model a set of algorithms that promote sort of you know toxicity that promote vile hateful rhetoric because that's what generates views and clicks and so whether you're youtube or twitter or facebook the business model drawing eyeballs to screens is dependent on allowing this sort of sick stuff these conspiracies lies to proliferate and 
unless you tackle that, which is sort of at the heart of disinformation in the 21st century in the digital environment, unless you tackle that, you're never going to get anywhere. You can expose all the sources methods you want, but you're always going to be playing whack-a-mole. Right. You know, I think we need to have a conversation about regulating big tech because big tech isn't going to do it on its own. That's where you get all these promises from, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and, and other uh, tech CEOs promising to take these steps and that steps. It's, uh, it's all it's all band-aids. It's all designed to sort of appease Congress and not get at the fundamental root of the problem, which is that their business model depends on what I call toxicity or uncivil society. Well, and also that peddlers of disinformation monetize themselves Correct. through these business models, right? That's the other danger. Yeah, absolutely. You can become rich spreading lies when you gain a big enough following. I mean, I'm always impressed by you know the decisions that Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, whatever, take almost tactically, but not strategically. So COVID disinformation seems to be a major thing where accounts are being removed and articles you know, sort of wiped. But Holocaust denial, other forms of genocide denial, whether it's Bosnia or Syria or whatever, all of these things are allowed to persist. Are you advocating then that when you say regulation, we're talking about you know the US government getting involved and leaning on these big tech companies to what, do more, to monitor or kind of create algorithms that play whack-a-mole with dangerous, malicious, and in some cases, um, violent content? I mean, what, what is the prescription there? Yeah, look, I think when pressed to do so after 9-11, sort of the, the tech platforms, they eventually, they were slow, but they took action to combat Islamic extremism online. They have not shown, as you've mentioned, a similar interest in combating domestic extremism or other for you know other just vile content like holocaust denial and so they're not going to do it on their own because it takes resources to do it and because it also diminishes their business model as i said earlier so that conversation exactly what the form of regulation looks like is you know that's sort of outside that's beyond my pay grade that's not really my area of expertise. But as someone who watches, you know, foreign countries and non-state actors engage in rampant disinformation, and I've been watching this for years now, it's clear that a change is needed. And it's not going to happen based on just conversations or public-private partnerships. It's going to take, unfortunately, it's going to take legislation. It's going to take rules on how this stuff is promoted uh, on these platforms. And there are rules about this which govern, you know, print media like newspapers. And so it's not beyond the realm of the imaginable on how this should look when applied to digital platforms. But I leave it to far smarter people to tell you exactly, you know, what the, the content of that legislation ought to look like. The election of Joe Biden is seen or has been presented by many, myself included, as a kind of restoration of the international, not just of American democracy, but of, of the international liberal post-war order, right? The restoration of these alliances and these kind of relationships that have been fostered and encouraged for you know, almost a, a century now. But the world that Joe Biden will be president in has changed quite dramatically, in fact, over the last four years, and not just as a result of Donald Trump being the outgoing president. You see now, I mean, even within NATO, a great deal of fraction and division and kind of strategic incoherence. The president of France, Emmanuel Macron, has called this the brain death of NATO in response to the US withdrawal from Northeast Syria and Turkey's invasion of Northeast Syria. The president of Turkey is now taking unilateral action all over the place from Libya to the Caucasus, where he's just 
in effect help uh, Azerbaijan win a war for much of Nagorno-Karabakh. How is it even possible at this point? Oh, and by the way, I should mention that, you know, France and Turkey, two NATO allies, are in effectively in a state of cold, cold war, proxy warfare with each other, including and especially in Libya, where France is backing, you know, General Haftar and the Turks are backing the, the internationally recognized government. What I'm painting here is a very forbidding kind of hodgepodge of not really alliances, but interests that collide and almost in some cases violently so with each other. How do you restore these relationships? How do you create this kind of Pax Americana when it's all seemingly fallen apart? You know, and America is, it's not a magician. It can't just kind of wave, wave its wand and everything comes back together again. Has the world moved on and perhaps moved on too, in too dangerous a direction for Joe Biden to try and fix it at this point? No, I don't think so. I think the the answer to all the problems that you just cited, all the global challenges and internal challenges that we face, the answer relies on strengthening our alliances and partnerships, but not, you know, strengthening the NATO that existed during the Cold War or even the NATO that existed post 9/11, which sought to go out of area to combat terrorism. It's going to require a set of a flexible architecture of cooperation among democratic states to tackle what are some of the biggest challenges that we face going forward. Now, NATO will have a role to play for decades to come doing the sort of conventional and nuclear deterrence and defense that it is designed to do. But in addition to that, you know, we've been sort of guarding quite vigilantly the front door. And that's what I call sort of the conventional nuclear deterrence, the sort of the front door. But meanwhile, we sort of taken our eyes off the back door, which allows foreign adversaries to manipulate us using, like we said earlier, disinformation, dark money, energy coercion, political active measures, financial tools, debt diplomacy, all these other sort of slightly more subversive, subrosa forms of coercion and manipulation. And so we need to get serious about that because when you look at, you know, Turkey's role within NATO, when you look at what's happening with Hungary within NATO, it is this sort of oligarchization of these countries' democracies and and simultaneously its subversion. So there's as countries move to become more oligarchic, they also become more authoritarian. It's kind of like an ironclad rule of politics. And so we need to strengthen our democracies. We need to protect them. We need to get serious about energy independence and energy security in Europe. We need to fight disinformation. We need to especially push back on the financial active measures. Just the fact that the Russians were able to fund an NGO in the Netherlands to oppose Ukraine's association agreement with the EU, and that that NGO then morphed into a far-right political party, which now has the second largest number of seats in the Dutch parliament, that's a big deal. And we need to be guarding against that sort of thing. So look, I think there's a whole agenda out there that the next administration will have to tackle that is different from, you know, what we've traditionally done with our allies in the past. It focuses on different threat vectors, but working with them is going to be the key, because if we do it alone, there's no way we can succeed in countering these threats. Okay, on that note, Mike Carpenter, it's uh, been a pleasure and I wish you the best of luck, um, whether you're in the administration or you're advising it from the outside. Uh, and I hope you will come back um, as we see how a Biden policy toward Russia and Europe and everything else, uh, frankly, unfolds. Thanks, Michael. Real pleasure. All right, cheers.